Our reading is from the Acts of the Apostles, um, where Luke is describing Paul's farewell to the Ephesian elders. We read from verses 13 to the end, which is verse 37, 39 or something. We went on ahead to the ship and sailed for Assos, where we were going to take Paul aboard. He had made this arrangement because he was going there on foot. When he met us at Assos, we took him aboard and went on to Mytilene. The next day we set sail from there and arrived off Chios. The day after that we crossed over to Samos and on the following day arrived at Miletus. Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. Only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you by by this kind of hard work we must help the weak, remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul had finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. 
What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And we thank God for his word. Let's pray together, shall we? Father, we thank you so much for the word of your grace. And we want to pray that indeed it would this evening build us up, we ask. In Jesus' name. Amen. It is lovely to uh, to be with you this evening. Can I say as an observer from the outside, there are so many reasons I'm thankful for the church here. It's lovely to see the, the developments in the building, but particularly in that letter from Buckingham bore this out. I'm so thankful for the generosity of hearts that the church here has for other churches. There's just lots that I'm thankful for um, as I followed the, uh, the story of Long Crendon from a distance. Which means we've got an important question tonight. How do you avoid losing your way? Lots to be thankful for. Lots that is good. How do you avoid losing your way? I believe over the last few weeks you've been studying uh, Acts uh, 19 and 20. And you've seen the way in which Paul went and proclaimed the kingdom in Ephesus. The way in which a church began to be built as he spent three years there. The way in which he was driven away through a riot. And now he's coming back, not quite to Ephesus, but passing by Ephesus. And he pulls together the elders of this fledgling church. You've seen what's happened. Gospel preached, persecution taking place, but nevertheless a church established. A church that's doing good. Elders appointed. And Paul is speaking to these elders. How do you build on what you've got? How do you avoid losing your way? That's the issue as we get to Acts chapter 20. In some ways, this is quite an unusual passage as you look at Acts. You know, most of Acts, you'll see people like Peter and Paul doing evangelism. You get to hear their speeches to uh, non-Christian groups. Here's actually the longest speech in Acts, which is simply delivered to Christians. Here's Paul's mandate. Here's how you elders need to lead the church. And as Paul speaks about the church, there are two particular things that he focuses on. Firstly, he points out that the church is precious. The church is precious. See what he says in verse 28. He says to the elders, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I wonder what comes to mind as you think about the church. I guess it's easy to think about a kind of institution. You know, certain things need to be organized, don't they? And it's easy just to kind of fix on that level. But Paul's perspective on the church is this. This is a flock that God has bought with his own blood. There are all kinds of reasons why the Lord Jesus hung on that cross. But one of the reasons the Lord Jesus hung on that cross was that Longcrenden Baptist Church might exist. This is the result of his work on the cross. He bought the church with his own blood. There were a group of people who were slaves to sin and to death and to hell. And as Jesus hung on the cross, he bought a church redeemed by his blood. The church is incredibly precious. Jesus died so that this group might exist. 
And so you can never treat the church lightly. It can never be a kind of hobby when I've got nothing better to do. The church is an incredibly precious group of people. Jesus dies that it might exist. He bought it with his own blood. And then secondly... The church is a group that is always in danger. The church is a group that is always in danger. Have a look at what Paul says in verses 29 and 31. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years, I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. I find that really striking, actually. You know, there's Paul. He's at Ephesus. He's got three years with these Christians. You know, what would you do with a group of young Christians for three years? One of the things Paul kept doing was warning them. Night and day, I warned you with tears. He took these young Christians and he warns them. He says, there's going to be people who appear... And they're not going to preach the same message that I'm preaching to you. There'll be other things they'll say. Things that aren't true. Things that aren't in line with God's plan. Be on your guard. Remember, I warned you, Paul says to the Ephesians, Ephesian elders. He's saying the church, this precious church, will always be in danger. I feel like... Astonishing, really. I, I don't know about you. For, for me, as I think about Woody Road, my assumption is basically, you know, Woody Road will just keep going and it'll all be fine. That, that's kind of what I assume. My guess is it's easy to assume, well, that's the case here. Yeah, you've got good people around. It will all just keep going. But of course, if we reflect for a moment, we, we know that's not necessarily the case. You know, many of us will have walked through town centres and seen buildings that used to be pretty big churches. An experience a few years ago of preaching in a church that used to seat 700 and there were the 20 of them sat there. Others of us will know the experience perhaps of friends who've been in churches that have just got themselves into a complete mess. Perhaps a split Perhaps a difficulty with a pastor, and it's just been a nightmare to live through. Uh, this feels quite relevant for me personally. Uh, for various personal reasons, I end up speaking to quite a lot of churches on issues to do with sexuality, singleness, and some of the kind of ethical issues attached to that. About six weeks ago, I spent two evenings with a church that was basically trying to work out, do we stick by what the Bible teaches, or are we going to go down a different path? They chose to go down a different path. You know, I spent an hour teaching them what I thought the Bible said, and then I sat in a follow-up meeting where they said, that's lovely, but it doesn't feel very loving. We're going to marry same-sex couples. And I remember sitting there just thinking, I know the issues are complex, but I have a feeling that this church is currently signing its death warrant, and I'm watching. Because actually it was very evident as they were talking, it wasn't just that issue. They had a different gospel a different idea of discipleship and so on. It's quite a painful experience sitting and watching a church effectively sign its death warrant. What was more painful was that I knew some of the people in that church. I'd worked alongside them in some contexts. The church is always in danger. I suspect increasingly so over the next 20 years or so. 
And that's why this is relevant, because Paul is saying, you need to be on your guard. Oh, Ephesian elders, things might be going wonderfully. You know, you've survived the riots. Pretty good to survive a riot. You've survived the riots. The future looks good, but be on your guard. Let's be honest, there isn't a thriving church in Ephesus today. Be on your guard. The church is precious and always in danger. So how does it keep going? How does it flourish instead of die? Two things I want us to notice in this passage. Firstly, we see Paul's example. Paul's example. I wonder whether you can imagine the scene. You know, there's Paul surrounded by these young new leaders. Listen to what he says as he gets them together in verse 18. He says, you know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. Paul appeals to these Ephesian elders, you know me. You, you know how I lived during those years I was with you. You know that I didn't stand on ceremony as the great apostle. You know, I was humble. I worked hard. You know, when opposition came, I I didn't give way. Indeed, actually, the bulk of this speech is Paul reflecting on the example he'd set for them. It runs all the way through to verse 27, and it's there again in verses 33 to 35. Now, why does Paul do this? It, It isn't pride... You elsewhere, Paul is very willing to describe himself as the chief of sinners. But Paul did regard it as his role to set an example. As he followed the example of Christ, he wanted to set an example to others. And that was really important for a couple of reasons. One of the ways in which the, uh, the kind of first century church sometimes lost its way was when people came in, and you find this in places like Corinth and possibly Thessalonica, people came in and said, you don't really want to listen to Paul. You know, Paul was all right, but as you go into a new stage of church life, you need somebody other than Paul. And these leaders would come in and drag people away from the gospel that Paul preached. And so it's important, actually, for the churches to respect Paul. Because if you leave Paul behind, generally you'll leave his gospel behind as well. And so time and again in his letters and here in Acts 20, Paul has to say, you remember how I served. Remember that I am somebody who is still worth respecting, still worth looking to. Because then you'll stick with my gospel. Again, can I be honest, that isn't just a first century thing. One of the ways in which I knew this church that I spent time with was getting in a mess was when the pastor stood up and said, well, Paul says this in the Bible, but on the other hand, Jesus dot, dot, dot. Uh, And you suddenly realize, okay, he's going for Jesus is completely different to Paul. And it's, well, no surprise, you just toss the Bible away. It's important that we recognize Paul as the humble servant commissioned by Jesus then we'll pay attention to his gospel and to what he says. And then beyond that, rather than, uh, as well as simply talking about the example that he set, he models the way in which the Christian life should be lived. 
We're going to work through this. And one of the questions I think worth asking is, is my sense of the Christian life the same shape as Paul's Christian life? Because here's how he lived. Here's the example he set. Firstly, he was committed to what I've called the inclusive and the exclusive gospel. Have a look at what he says in verse, uh, verse 20 where Paul puts it like this. He says, you know that I've not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in Jesus Christ. Paul is radically inclusive in wanting to get the gospel out. Whether it's a Jew or a Gentile, he's going from house to house Wanting to communicate the gospel to people. You know, there's no group, no community that he overlooks. He knows that people need to hear the message of the Lord Jesus Christ. But notice that that gospel brings with it a kind of exclusive element. That's to say, it isn't simply that Paul preached, hey, God loves you. Everybody, God loves you. Isn't that wonderful? In repentance and have faith in the Lord Jesus. That clarity that there is a problem, people need to turn around, turn from their sin and obey God, trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's committed to both of those. Actually, one of the challenges as we think about the Christian life rightly is, is to hold on to that. I think a church can lose its way by not being inclusive. You know, in a sense, not having a heart for the whole community, only being interested in certain types of people, or worse, only being interested in itself. That really is a death wish. But the other way in which the church can lose its way is lacking the clarity to say people need to repent. People need to turn from their sins and embrace the Lord Jesus. Both of those things are necessary. And the church will flourish as it holds on to a message for everybody. Everybody must repent. And that's what Paul does. That's why actually he can say uh, later on in verse 26, I declare to you today that I'm innocent of the blood of any of you. Why? Because I've not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Paul is saying, if I'd not preached the gospel to you, or if I'd kind of watered it down, come judgment day, there would have been blood on my hands because, well, I hadn't taught you the truth. But I have taught you the truth. So in the end, what you do with that is your responsibility. I am innocent of your blood. And so Paul sets a model for us, this gospel for everybody, but that demands repentance. And then... Secondly, Paul models the Christian life in having one aim. Having one aim. Have a look with me at verse 22. Paul's talked about the past, and now he talks about his future ministry. Now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city, how the Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. Striking, isn't it? My life isn't worth anything. <laughs> what matters 
is doing what Jesus wants me to do. Testifying to the gospel of grace. Again, Paul's example for us here is striking because there is a subtle danger that we can face. A few years ago, um, I read uh, a book by the uh, theologian Chris Wright. It's a massive sort of 600-page tome called The Mission of God. And if I'm honest, I read all 600 pages and I can remember scarcely anything. But having reviewed all that the Bible says about God's mission, he has the most stunning question on the penultimate page. He puts it like this. We ask, where does God fit into the story of my life? When the real question is, where does my little life fit into this great story of God's mission? Can you see the difference? You know, very often as we think about life, we have life, we have our family, we have our house, you know, some of us will have our career. And then we kind of ask the question, you know, where does Jesus fit into that? You know, we want Jesus in that because we appreciate he offers us forgiveness and a church family and a hope for the future. We want Jesus in our life. But essentially it's our life with Jesus thrown in. And yet the question Chris Wright is reflecting on is actually that's the wrong way to think about life. The way to think about life is here is God. Here is what God is doing throughout the world. How do I use my life to join in with that? You see, it's not my life is center stage and Jesus is somewhere in the orbit of that. It's saying God and his plans are center stage and I get to participate in that. Do you you see the difference? And Paul is the second, isn't he? My, My life isn't worth anything. The only thing that matters to me is completing the task God has given me. To testify to God's grace. Will you allow me to be blunt? One of the joys of being a visiting preacher is I can lob things out and then run away. But my experience, and this will be true of Woody Road, is I could probably divide the church along how people deal with that kind of question. Respectable Christians, but essentially they've got their life, and they're grateful Jesus is in there, but essentially their life comes first. Versus those whose whole life and the way they do their career and run their family is all about living for God first and foremost. Now, can I be honest? It is hugely attractive to say, I'll do my life with a little bit of Jesus offering me forgiveness thrown in. It is hugely attractive to do it that way. And it will be the death of the church. Because do you know what you'll end up with? you end up with a really, really lovely, comfortable church that never does anything. It's only actually where there's a preparedness to face the hardship that Paul talks about. I'm going to Jerusalem, I know the hardships that face me. That's when you see the church flourishing and going forward, when there's that clear one aim in life. My chief aim in life is to serve God and to glorify him. And of course, in doing that, In Paul saying, I'm going to Jerusalem and my life doesn't matter to me. And I know that hardship is facing me in Jerusalem. We know who he's following, don't we? Face set towards Jerusalem. My life means nothing to me. I'm going right in the direction of hardship. Paul following the example of the Lord Jesus Christ. And giving the example then to us. A life with one aim. 
And then Paul's model is a model of generosity, which you get in verses 33 to to 35. You can say this, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions in everything I did. I showed you by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Paul didn't do this for the money. (laughs) He didn't do this for the comfort and the security. He worked hard. He didn't take money from the Ephesians. Why? Well, because like Jesus, he wanted to give himself away rather than receive lots. And actually, it wasn't just the financial generosity. There's an emotional openness there. See how the uh, the elders react to the sense they're probably not going to see Paul again, this side of the new creation. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. Yeah, they, they love this guy who has served them generously, emotionally, financially. They love him. And again, Paul is a fine example for us. Again, no to anything like a prosperity gospel that says God's main priority for us is to be rich and successful. But more subtly, no to a sense of what matters is my comfort and my ease. Actually, it's more blessed to be like Jesus and to give ourselves away. The question we ask is, as I serve God first and foremost, how do I give rather than what am I going to get back from this? Paul is generous. Can you see just how Paul's example would shape the church? This gospel for all that demands repentance. This sacrificial, I'm prepared to face hardship because I've got one aim in life, to serve the purposes of God. This warm-hearted generosity. And Paul is saying to the Ephesian elders, here's your model. Keep going in that. And that's the first way in which the church isn't going to lose its way. The church will avoid losing its way if it imitates Paul's example in these sort of areas. That's the first thing. Then the second thing. How does the church keep going? It keeps going through godly leadership. Through godly leadership. Now, you might have noticed that I've ducked possibly the big issue in this passage so far. In as much as Paul isn't just addressing the whole church, he's addressing the elders of the church they're described in various ways in this passage there the elders they're described as the overseers in verse 28 that's actually the same word where we get bishop from i quite like to uh, point out that technically into the bible i'm a bishop and i've even got the shirt to prove it but um they're elders they're overseers and they're called to be shepherds that's where we get the image of a pastor from verse 28 where he says keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the holy spirit has made you overseers be shepherds of the church of gods and so you have these elders pastors overseers bishops they're all one and the same group now notice right from the outset the church has leadership that's not accidental It's not that they become leaders by sort of forcing their way to the front and kind of trampling on others. No, see what Paul says. Be overseers of the flock. Why? Because the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Verse 28. 
the elders are put there by the Holy Spirit. Now, it's always odd preaching passages like this as a visiting speaker. And I have to be honest, the elders haven't told me anything about how to preach it, just to reassure you. But I know, frankly, in every church that I've been in, there is always some degree of resistance somewhere in the congregation to the idea of leadership. And Paul is saying it's right. It's what the Holy Spirit does, is he brings forth leaders from the church. And so in as much as leaders are being biblical, in the end to resist them becomes to resist the plans of the Holy Spirit. Not in saying we can't ever disagree with them, but in saying to resist the whole idea that we need to be led is to go against the plans of God's Holy Spirit. You see, it's the Holy Spirit's plan for the church. Now, what are these elders to do, according to Paul? There's actually four commands they've got in verses 28 to 31. Firstly, they're to keep watch over themselves. They're to keep watch over the flock. They're to be shepherds of the church. And they're to be on your guards. Keep watch over yourselves. Keep watch over the flock. Be shepherds of the church. Be on your guards. Now, can I say this? particularly to those of us perhaps who are elders here. Or or let me take it broader. It might be that there are youth leaders, home group leaders. Here's the first command. Keep watch over yourselves. Keep watch over yourselves. To be honest, one of the things that dawned on me as I was preparing this, one of the main ways in which Woody Road, where I am, could lose its way would frankly be if I lost my way. Or, to be honest, if my fellow elders lost their way. Not, frankly, because I'm massively important, but just because if I lost my way completely, that would hurt people quite a lot. Perhaps the young Christians who've heard me preach the gospel would then say, well, you know, is the gospel true if the guy who preached it to us ended up getting shipwrecked? It really matters that elders don't lose their own way Those of us who are elders, we are not simply ministry machines churning stuff out for other people and our own life doesn't matter. Keep watch over yourselves. I was joking earlier actually about the the year I had trying to lead Woody Road and Grace Church Kidlington that I'd become a tired and grumpy uh, pastor. I was only half joking actually. And to be honest, it dawned on me about halfway through the year when I was juggling both, when I kind of got to the stage, I really wasn't enjoying being a Christian very much. Just thinking, this isn't good. I need to do something about this. And one or two friends were saying, Andy, you need to do something about this. I'm glad they said that to me. Because Paul says, elders, keep watch over yourselves. Make sure you don't lose your way. And then be shepherds of the flock. That does involve caring for people. Our congregation is never the means to fulfill ourselves or to further our own ambitions. Our role, if we're leaders in any capacity, is to be others-focused. The issue isn't, does this fulfill me, but am I shepherding and caring for others as I do it? 
But I think it's worth noticing, particularly in this context, how the shepherding works. I think we can be quite sentimental about shepherds, can't we? We kind of think that the role of a shepherd is to kind of go around stroking the kind of wool of the sheep saying nice things. Whereas in the context Paul is speaking about, one of the key things a shepherd did was to fight off wolves. (laughs) You've got your kind of flock there. And obviously you have wolves in the area, and basically wolves see sheep and think meal. And so actually one of the main things the shepherd was to do was basically to fight against the wolves. You do know one of the key things that elders have to do is to prevent false teaching. That's what Paul's saying, actually. One of the main things the elders are responsible to do is to make sure wolves don't get in and devour the sheep. Why? Because the church is always in danger. And Paul gives the elders the tools to do that. He says, be on your guard. And then he says, verse 32, Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all who are sanctified. What is the the tool, if you like, that God gives to elders, to shepherd, to care for the flock and to drive away the wolves? It's the word of God's grace. Here, this is what you've got, this glorious, wonderful message of a God who is merciful. A God who, when we wander away, responds in grace and gives his son, the Lord Jesus. A God who doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. Hey, this message enshrined in this book... This is what I give to you, elders, to preach, to proclaim, so that the people will grow in the truth and not listen to falsehood. That's the great task that the elders are given. It is quite funny, actually. I have to be honest, as I was coming here this evening thinking, oh boy, I've mainly got a warning passage to preach. I was slightly dreading it because... I know the experience can be people think I'm at my least loving when I preach warning passages. Can I be honest? I'm at my most loving when I preach warning passages. Because actually then I'm doing what Paul's given us to do. To be honest, warning passages don't come easily to me personally. I much prefer preaching warm, encouraging passages. But actually, believe me, I will be at my most loving, and frankly your elders will be as well, when they preach warning passages. Because that's what Paul did night and day for three years. I warned you with tears. Why? Because he loved them. And so the role of the elders will be to keep watch of themselves and to shepherd the flock of God supremely with the word of God. And so as Paul says that's the role of the elders, can I just close by a word for those of us who haven't got leadership responsibilities? Can I encourage you, please, won't you help your pastors and your elders? One of the things that I'm so thankful for is that Woody Road has treated me so well, way better than I deserve. They want me to take care of myself. You know, when they see me tired and grumpy, they don't say work harder. They say, are you getting enough time off? You know, care for them. Help your leaders to do this. Keep watch over themselves and appreciate it when they shepherd you by proclaiming to you the word of God's grace 
can I be honest, one of the greatest privileges for me is being in a church where I know I will get more flack if I distort the truth than if I teach it. That is the most precious gift the church gives to me. I will get more flack from the congregation if I distort the Bible than if I preach it. That is such a precious gift the church gives to me. My suspicion is that's true here. Keep encouraging your elders and your pastors by loving it when they preach you the truth, even when that's sometimes quite hard. Because I'm so thankful for the church here. And my heart for here, as it would be for Woody Road, is don't lose your way. Keep going. How? Through Paul's pattern, the Christian life, the gospel for all, even as that calls people to repentance. And by treasuring godly leadership, where that proclaims the word of God to you. Keep going. Let's pray together. Father God, we want to thank you so much for your work in calling a church together. Lord Jesus, we praise you that you bought the church with your own blood, and so it is so precious and so valuable. And so, Lord, we pray, please, won't you keep us on the right track? Won't you keep us from losing our way, we pray? Please, Lord, may there be a flourishing, gospel-believing, gospel-preaching church reaching out to this village for, for many, many years to come until you return, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, please help us to be those who are anxious to get the gospel out, whose supreme aim in life is to serve your purposes. Let's be warm and generous as we do it. And Father, please strengthen the elders and the, the other leaders here. Help them to keep watch over themselves. Help them to shepherd the flock with your word, we pray. And may there be great harmony, actually, as, as those in leadership responsibility, those with other responsibilities, just delight to serve and encourage one another. And may the result be the gospel. Having a great impact on this village, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.